Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. Thanks for uh, joining us for church this morning uh, through power outages and a really cozy fall morning. Uh, it's good to see you all here. Before I jump into the text, uh, I want to bring your attention to a couple of things. Zach already mentioned right after this, we're, having, we're streaming the football game up here, uh, and we're going to have a tailgate party. So um, hopefully you are looking forward to some food. Uh, Steve bought an entire store of chips. Uh, and it's BYOB, so here's to day drinking at church. <laughs> um, and this is also the last week of September. Uh, I'm still learning what you can say and can't say up here. This morning is the last week of September, and September is, uh, it has been our L2 Kids volunteer drive. So we're really looking, the goal is to be able to open a whole other classroom for a whole other age division down in L2 Kids, and we're really close. What we're looking to do is gather at least 10 more volunteers. And with 10 volunteers, what that allows us to do is if you make a three-month commitment to volunteer one Sunday per month. So this is only three times that you're volunteering on Sundays. Three-month commitment to volunteer one Sunday for each of those month, months. That will allow us to open a whole new classroom. So there are signups downstairs. 20% of our congregation are kids. It's the unreached people group that's meeting right below us. Um, so you can, uh, it, yeah, we really welcome you to volunteer there. It makes a huge difference for uh, parents who can come and attend on Sunday mornings and in the students' lives. Um, so signups are downstairs. This is the last month in our, or the final Sunday in our volunteer drive. So, we're moving through our series in the Psalms called Anatomy of the Soul, because we chose that title from a John Calvin quote, it's kind of a variation on a description he gave of the Psalms, which uh, he uses to describe that the Psalms capture every part of our souls, and they describe all the different emotions and experiences and thoughts that we can have uh, and how believers have shared those with God. So we're looking to understand ourselves and understand on this deep relational level what does our relationship with God look like, especially through our prayers. We, this morning we're looking at Psalm 13, uh, which personally was one of those psalms when I first became a Christian and I was reading the Bible on my own. I encountered Psalm 13 and was kind of shocked by it because it has this uh, honesty that I didn't think was available 
in our relationship with God when I had first become a Christian. The way that David engages and talks with God in the psalm is kind of shocking. Uh, He speaks in an almost, I don't think it's too much to say, like an accusatory way. Where are you, God? How long is it going to take for you to remember me? It's that type of honesty. Um, The type of honesty we need this morning if you're a Colorado Buffaloes fan. But the depth of pain that we see David in, in the midst of the psalm, uh, is really worth exploring, because I think that a lot of us lack any sort of authenticity in our faith, and in our prayer life especially, in the way that we relate to God. We have developed practices of, in our relationships with each other, in which we put on faces to allow ourselves to not be truly known, And those same practices carry over into our relationship with God to where when we approach him in prayer, we're dishonest. We're offering him some sort of best self rather than what is actually happening in our hearts and minds. David paints a very different picture than that. In the midst of this psalm, he is in... uh, Several commentators said that this psalm took place uh, during one of the most trying times of David's life. That's likely where they placed this psalm happening. And this is at the end of his reign as king, and his son, Absalom, through this, uh, these very manipulative tactics, has undermined him as king, and has gathered his own army together to try and overthrow David. So David is at this point where he's warring against his own son, whom he loves and cares for, in the defense of his kingdom, which has been given to him by God. David's whole life is surrounded by situations like this. It seems to begin and end with these situations that are uh, full of these terrible, confusing gray areas. Uh, David gets the throne by being embattled with the king Saul. Um, And there's this terrible gray area that he's in. And now at the end of his career, he's sort of in this other sort of terrible gray that's confusing, where uh, he cares for and loves his son, and now they are enemies together. You can imagine that sort of turmoil, how that would weigh on David. Uh, To provide us some context, I pulled an excerpt from uh, this moment in David's life. In 2 Samuel 16, 11 through 14, what we see is David is actually going to battle his son, and en route, he is being slandered by one of Saul's uh, uh, relatives, uh, someone from the tribe of Benjamin that Saul was a part of. And uh, this is When he's being slandered by this person, David's servants are saying, how are you going to let him talk to you that way? You're the king. How are you going to let this servant talk to you that way? And David's response gives us a picture into where David's head is at in this moment. He says, 2 Samuel 16, 11 to 14, it says, And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite? Leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. 
So David and his men went on the road, while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. So David goes through this type of day where he's being cursed by an old enemy, reminding him of his son's rebellion. And he's in this place where he's, he's even unwilling to respond, thinking that God is probably calling him to curse me in this way. And perhaps my hope is that God is good, uh, and I may be rewarded for these cur- curses. David is in a dark spot, uh, a place that's hard to imagine how to bear. In the midst of this pain, uh, or at least a pain like it, because we don't know exactly that this is exactly when this psalm was penned. Um, But that sort of context provides us an example of the type of pain that this psalm is pointing towards. David is warring between his kingdom internally with his son and his relationships, internally with himself. And we see all of that expressed clearly in this psalm, Psalm 13. So what we're going to look at is David's pain, which takes place in uh, three different relationships, in the context of three different relationships. David's pain between him and God, this distance that he feels. David's pain between him and himself, this inner turmoil that he feels. And finally, David's pain between him and his enemies. Next, we're going to look at the prayer what David's prayer means in the, midst of this prayer, in the midst of this pain. And then finally, we're going to look at what is David's hope. Because what we see in this psalm, which is pretty radical, is a song that begins with, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And then six sentences later, ends with, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. What's happening in a person's heart that they're able to make that move in six sentences? What are they looking at? What do they see? That's what we're exploring this morning. So first of all, David's pain. Psalm 13, 1 to 2 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Four times he repeats this phrase, how long? This is not a petty inconvenience that he's dealing with. This is a long suffering that he's been experiencing for a long time. His endurance is wearing out. How long, God, can you expect me to live in this sort of turmoil? Many of you may be thinking that now or have thought it before. You're in good company. He extends it to its maxim. Lord, will you forget me forever? You see, there's this, there's this feeling of hopelessness that David is dealing with. Is this just my lot in life? Is this the way that I will experience the world? How long will you be so distant from me? He begins by addressing the pain of his relationship between himself and God. So we'll look first at that, David's relationship between himself and God. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me? In those two phrases, will you forget me forever and will you hide your face from me, we see two sorts of different complaints. Forgetting 
or remembering is uh, it usually comes before uh, God's movement to action on your behalf. When he remembers you, it's another way of saying he's moving to action on your behalf in a real practical way. So David is saying there's been no practical, tangible help. I can't point to anything. I can see no resolution. And I can't point to your assistance in this area. How long will you forget me? And then secondly, David says, how long will you hide your face from me? This is different from that practical, tangible sort of help. What we see David crying for here is a a lack of God's friendship, a lack of God's feeling of closeness. A simple, God doesn't feel present in my life at all. The joy that I once had with his presence, it doesn't seem to be here. For David, this is particularly meaningful. We see that the, the cry of his heart so constantly was to behold God's face. This is something that, that makes up the depth of his deepest desires that we see echoing throughout the rest of the Psalms. David has this deep desire to behold the face of God in some sort of a real way, understanding God's presence, God's active care in his life. In Psalm 27, verse 4, David is also in an embattled situation, and he says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You see, this is an aesthetic longing, not just for the Lord's practical help, but for the Lord's beauty for the enjoyment of the Lord in and of himself, irrespective of the practical help that he receives. It's that type of abandonment that David is feeling. My fear is that many of us wouldn't even recognize that type of thing missing from our lives if it were. Because we only seek God in terms of some practical benefit in terms of some resolution to a situation or some circumstantial resolution to a relationship, and we aren't missing or longing for his presence, for him, to gaze upon something so useless as beauty. What do you use beauty for? And yet this is the deep desire of David's heart, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to behold his face, to know him in some sort of a truly meaningful way. This is a tough thing to preach on because your words sort of start of get really flowery and sort of not as concrete and uh, you realize the limits of your language in that way. And uh, uh, you know, you know, like the, the disk assessment test? It's out there. You can Google it. Um, my aesthetic score is zero. <laughs> so, like, I'm not motivated aesthetically. Uh, Zach's is like the whole test is like he's very aesthetic. That's why we have our jobs. Um, and, uh, but this points towards this reality of there is this savoring of God, even for his beauty, that David is missing here. And the circumstances in his life have brought him to a point 
where he, he's struggling to even enjoy God for who he knows God to be. It's that type of darkness. Are you even beautiful? Can I even behold your face? Is that sort of communion with God possible? That's where David is. The next sort of pain that we see David in is uh, between David and, and himself. It's this inner turmoil. He says, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? This will probably be the most relatable of David's turmoil. At least I found it to be the most relatable of David's turmoil. Not that that's right or wrong. Um, but I think it is just deeply relatable. You see, David describes himself, and he's, he's asking, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? See, David has turned towards the Lord, and he's feeling abandoned and neglected, even forgotten. And so he turns inward, and he thinks, perhaps I can wander around my mind and discover what the answer is to this circumstance, how I can find my way out of this. How can I preserve my kingdom and save my son, who is now my enemy, and convince people that God has not abandoned me, that we might live in God's promises now. And he turns into his mind and he wanders around looking for an answer, constantly coming up with nothing, only turning to answers that are just in some way or another too great of a loss to bear. And so David's mind is constantly tormented. He's moving around looking for a logical solution and finds himself the way that John Calvin described it is he finds himself humiliated because the circumstance is so dire, it's so bad, that there isn't a solution that he can manufacture in his mind. And that is a punishment in himself. See, he discovers as he's wandering around his own mind that this is hopeless and that turns him towards his own sort of sorrow. Another David that I think was well acquainted with this type of living uh, David Foster Wallace, who is the writer uh, who killed himself in 2008, um, he has this description of this sort of inner turmoil in one of his books. And uh, he describes this, it's about this boy who is incredibly anxious. He's an incredibly anxious person. And he's really sweaty because of it. And so he's describing these situations where he's uh, going to just a family dinner and uh, how he'll, he'll, he's so nervous that the candles and the heat that's already in the room and then the body heat from everyone in the family dinner and then the dinner, like he's just going to be sweating and it's going to be so embarrassing. And uh, David Foster Wallace has this amazing line uh, for when the, right when the boy sits down. He says, the heat of the fear of the heat spread through him like adrenaline or brandy. The heat of the fear of the heat. See, that's the pain that David is experiencing. It's this sorrow of his distress over his sorrow. His pain is multiplied. The circumstance isn't enough because when he turns inside to try and discover some sort of solution to his circumstance, he's humiliated and pained again. His own counsel has become his prison because it is so fruitless. John Calvin 
describes it like this. He says, as in severe sickness, the diseased would desire to change their place every moment. And more acute the pains which afflict them are, the more fitful and eager are they in shifting and changing. So when sorrow seizes upon the hearts of men, its miserable victims are violently agitated within. They find it more tolerable to torment themselves without obtaining relief than to endure their afflictions with composed and tranquil minds. See, Calvin isn't saying this prescriptively. Calvin isn't saying, you know, if you're in turmoil, it's better to have a turmoiled mind than it is to have a peaceful and tranquil mind. That, that's not what Calvin's saying. This isn't prescriptive. This is descriptive of what is actually happening in David's mind. Where is he in this sort of turmoil? That's one of the things that I want us to see in this psalm is it has this deep sort of relatability. So what does David do with that type of turmoil? Here's what I think we typically do, or what often happens to us as Christians. We think, Jesus has promised me some sort of peace. Paul says, be anxious for nothing. Before I turn to God, I need to get this peace in my mind. Then I'll be able to pray clearly. Then I'll be able to pray effectively. And I'll be able to offer this God, I'll be able to offer to God this evidence of my faith, which manifests itself in this peace that I have in my mind. We don't see David operating like that at all. David is in the midst of this terrible turmoil. He's turned into his mind and has found no help there. And he prays. He prays in the midst of that. He prays that itself. Too many of us are waiting when we should be immediately turning in prayer. Finally, we see David's turmoil between him and his enemies. It says, how long shall my enemies be exalted over me? See, this is the circumstantial element of uh, the situation that he's in. Because what's really at stake here with his enemies being exalted over him is a sort of personal humiliation. He loses the kingdom. But it, that's not all we see because there is a real political threat to his kingship, which is bad news for the kingdom. So it's personal, but it's also political in a way that really matters. But beneath all of that, the threat to David's kingdom is a threat to God's promises to David. It's a threat to David's own understanding of God's faithfulness to him, to God's justice for Israel. These are all a part of David's uh, despair that he's feeling towards his enemies. So how long? How long until God's love exposes itself as something that's actually steadfast? How long can David remain in this sort of an inner turmoil? Next, we'll move into looking at David's prayer sort of more as a whole. As we move in and we understand that this situation, this uh, 
condition that David is in that we've seen in these first couple of verses that David exposes so clearly. As we continue in Psalm 13, 3 to 4, it says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. You see, this is the paradox of David's response. The paradox of David's prayer is that it is a prayer about God and in many ways a complaint about God's absence. And yet it is a prayer at the very same time to God. It is a prayer to God, which means that his baseline assumption is that he must be listening. You wouldn't complain like this if you didn't think he could hear. That's the paradox of what we see in David's prayer. Consider what this means about God. This psalm was a cry, this terrible pain in David's heart that the Holy Spirit inspires, that it might become scripture, that we might understand how is it that we can appropriately approach God, even even in the midst of this deep, terrible pain in our soul. What does that tell you about our God about what type of a God he is, about the things that he values, about the ways that he wants us to come to him and know him. It's strange and and shocking. I think in any other religion, it, it makes no sense at all to approach a holy God with this, in, by starting off with, how long are you going to forget me? How long until you show up and actually help That's what we see David doing, and it's scripture now. So, the next element, or the way that David prays, by saying, consider and answer me. What David is doing here is he's making an argument. He's laying out his case. Many of us don't pray like that. Uh, We simply make requests, but we lay out no case. We lay out no argument. And we can look and see that the way that David lays out his case is really unique. He says, Lord, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. You see, David is saying, if you don't show up and light up my eyes, if you don't give me the life, that only you can give, then I'm going to die. And if I die, then my enemies are going to prevail over me and they're going to gloat. And that's going to look like you're not faithful. It's going to look like a lack of faithfulness on your part. See, the hinge point of David's argument for God to help him is not David's own faithfulness. It's God's faithfulness. David is not saying, show up and help me because look at how much I've endured for you. Look how much I've been of benefit to you in establishing this kingdom. Look at how faithful I am to you, even in the midst of these dire circumstances. That's not the way David is arguing. David is arguing to God, look at at yourself. Understand your own faithfulness and help me based upon that. Oftentimes, we fall into this idea that we can somehow manipulate God into helping us, and we act that way. 
So we develop little rituals and little patterns. We pray in certain ways with certain meter. You know, our prayers only work if we journal them. Our prayers only work if we're kneeling. Our prayers only work if we're in the right mindset and we get into the right state of mind. What we're saying is we can manipulate God through some tactic into seeing our faithfulness and then acting acting because of our faithfulness. David isn't taking that approach here. He's saying, you don't respond to me because of me. Respond to me because of who you are. Respond to me because of your promises to me. That's what undergirds all of these. Consider and answer me. Light up my eyes. If I don't, I'll die. My enemies will prevail over me. Our foes will rejoice. Another thing to consider here is how certain David was that the path of his life was one that meant the glory of God, one that God himself was committed to, such that he would pray, do this because this is what you are pursuing. It's a very unique place to be in. David isn't bartering. That's what I'm trying to demonstrate. David isn't saying, help me out of this and then I will be this type of person for you. Or help me because I've been this type of person. David is only appealing to the one thing that's actually constant, which is God's own faithfulness. God, help me because of who you are. That is David's appeal. Finally, we'll move into David's hope. This is where David makes the turn in the psalm. And I think it happens because he begins to appeal to God based on who God is, not based on the circumstances around him. The psalm ends with these two verses. It says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is an incredible turn that the psalm is making. It's this, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. He puts it in this past tense to demonstrate this is, uh, uh, this is something he has done and it's something that he is doing and will continue to do. I have trusted in your steadfast love. That's something that has been a part of his character. He says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. He targets himself with this future orientation of, I know that I will one day rejoice. I will be joyful. I will be glad. Even if I'm not right now, I know that this is an inevitable consequence of who God is, that I will rejoice in his salvation. Salvation is one of those words that we've said so many times we don't even know what it means anymore. There's a circumstance, there are circumstances that you must be saved from. What do you do to get saved? What does it say about David and his confidence to overcome the situation by the power that's in himself, that what he's ultimately hoping in is salvation. He's hoping in rescue. That God will actually be able 
to rescue him, to save him. Many of us don't think of salvation that way. I think mostly we think of salvation as God providing us with an opportunity to help ourselves. That's not what salvation is at its base. Jesus didn't come to provide a way. Jesus came to buy people, to secure them. Jesus saves does not mean he provides an opportunity that you might save yourself. Jesus saves means Jesus saves. He rescues. He resurrects. That was a little tangent, but it's important. Because it clarifies the hope that David is trusting in. He's saying, I'll look back and I'll rejoice and I'll say, I was in this situation that was so dire and I was saved from it. That's the faithfulness of God that he sees, that he's trusting in. Derek Kidner is a commentator. He wrote about this part. He says, so the psalmist entrusts himself to this pledged love and turns his attention not to the quality of his faith, but to its object and its outcome, which he has every intention of enjoying. See, David doesn't turn his attention to the quality of his faith. What does that mean? It means that David isn't self-reflecting. David doesn't turn back into his own mind and think there's a stone in here that I haven't turned over and underneath it is a strong faith that will make this pain go away. That's not where David looks. He's done turning inward. We've seen the turmoil that's there. Instead, he turns his focus outward to the object of his faith and he looks towards the faithfulness of God and that becomes his hope. And it's that turning outward towards his faith's object that strengthens his faith internally. We typically do this backwards. We typically think, I'm going to get my faith so strong and then I'll use it to look to God. It's not the way that works. You look to God and you see, look how faithful he is. Look how steadfast his love has been. Look how consistent he is in his demonstration of affection towards his people. Look how no one who's trusted in him has ever been turned away. And you see this object of faith that is so worth trusting in that your faith then grows. All of David's hopes, these final ones, are based entirely on the grace of God, no way on the quality of of David's own faith. But it's in seeing the grace of God that David develops this incredible quality of faith. So where are you looking? Are you looking to your circumstance, to the quality of your own faith? Is that where you're seeking to gain this peace? Or are you looking to God and his steadfastness? There's one final observation, and then I'll close. And uh, this wasn't my observation, it's John Calvin's. Um, He's pretty good at this. 
says, in short, the only thing which remains to be observed is that David, in hastening with promptitude of soul to sing of God's benefits before he had received them, places the deliverance, which was then apparently at a distance, immediately before his eyes. See, David doesn't wait to have a state of soul that he can then offer to God as evidence of his own faithfulness. David takes who he is, the pain that he is actually experiencing in that moment, authentically, and he shares it with God in such a way that he remembers God's faithfulness and he's able to sing in a hope that he will one day rejoice in God's salvation and sing of God's steadfast love that God has dealt so bountifully with him. We sing because many of us are in situations like David. And God's faithfulness is not something that's immediately present to us in a way that we can put right before our face. But David sings in an effort to do that, in an effort to not just be listening to the turmoil of his soul, but to actually be turned outward to see something that's act, that is worth hoping in, that transcends his circumstances. We have an even better opportunity to do that than David did, as, as we know We've seen God's faithfulness demonstrated to us in a way that I think would have blown David's mind to understand the sacrifice that God made in Jesus, the cost that it actually took to secure an ultimate salvation. Do you see that as the object of your faith that's strengthening it? Would you be willing to sing even before you felt like that was a present reality in order to savor that object. Let's take some questions. What is David referring to when he says God has dealt bountifully with him? How might this be interpreted by someone suffering under sexual abuse right now? Or someone in terminal illness, pain, suffering? David isn't singing about anything in his circumstances. At that point in the psalm, David has given himself this future orientation. And he's imagining looking back over his life and imagining seeing and, and savoring the salvation that he had witnessed God bring to him. And he's rejoicing in that, in that future hope of his salvation. What that means is
I want to be so careful here. But what that means is we have such a transcendent hope that one day we will look back on all of the events of our lives and see how God worked his salvation in and through them and say, you dealt bountifully with me. Some translators translate that word bountifully uh, as like you, you dealt with me in such a way as it was all that I could imagine you provided. But bountifully captures it better because it shows that this is more than I could have imagined. Our hope is that we may one day view the circumstances we are in now as demonstrating a salvation that is even more than we can imagine. Next question. What if you feel like you're almost lying to say God's loving when you don't see evidence? I think it depends on where you're looking. There's a certain evidence that we have of God's love toward us, toward us that is, it's undeniable. Jesus on the cross shouting, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer to that question being something like, so that, so that he might r- ransom and pay the penalty of terrible sinners like us, so that we might share in his glory forever. That's a, a fact of history that we can look to to understand God's love towards us. But what we see reflected in this psalm is this deep honesty. As David shares, David understands God's faithfulness. And what we see reflected in this is a deep honesty of how David feels amidst his circumstances. So maybe pray something like, Lord, I understand there's some sort of evidence of your faithfulness. I know that it's in the cross, even though it doesn't feel tangible in any way to me right now. Lord, I almost feel like I'm lying when I say that you're loving. Maybe try praying something like that. Next question. Great. We're about to take communion. Communion is in remembrance of God's greatest demonstration of his love towards us. That Jesus' body was broken, it's represented by the broken bread, that his blood was poured out, it's represented by the wine that we drink. Well, dip. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Call this to your mind. Put it immediately before you. That's extremely helpful because we're in circumstances all the time that are saying this type of love obviously wasn't the case 
it must not have been a demonstration of his love towards you because look at the circumstance that you're in. Put this immediately before your mind. That's what it is to be a Christian. It's to hope in that. That is the object of our faith that strengthens our faith. If you're not a Christian, consider an answer. Look at that object, that type of demonstration of God's love. What does that mean to you? Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for psalms like Psalm 13. For your spirit to have spoken through David in this way, called his heart to so authentically bear itself before you, well before he was, <laughs> well before he got himself into like a, like a nice state to pray to you. You show us, look at what authentic faith looks like. It looks like trusting that God is hearing, even when all you're feeling is that he's not. Sharing that with God immediately, not waiting. Father, thank you for understanding our humanity so intimately. Lord, help us to live with this type of authenticity before you, this type of honesty before you, that we might more clearly look to your grace towards us with a faith that actually transcends our circumstances. Father, we lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening.